0: Good morning. morning. If you have your Bible still handy, would you please turn with me to our main text for this morning's message Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, "Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am?" And they said, "Some say that thou art John the Baptist; some Elias; and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets." He saith unto him them, "But whom say ye that I am?" And Simon Peter answered and said, "Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God." And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. And may God the Holy Spirit grant us the wisdom to understand the text before us this morning. But as always, let's approach the Lord in prayer first. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the Word of God which we have in our hands this morning. And we are assured that it was not only preserved and inspired by the Spirit of God, but that it is also a living Word, that it does not change, that it is profitable for reproof, for doctrine, so that we might know how to live before a holy and a righteous God. And so we ask thy blessing this morning upon this message, Lord, that it might strike to the heart and to the soul, for we ask it in our Savior's name always. Amen. We have before us the most precious passage of Scripture, for in it we find the central theme and object of our faith. Our Lord, we are told, came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi and asked his disciples one of the most important questions that ever a man can be asked. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? The answer to that question will certainly reveal the state of a man's heart and his standing before a holy and a righteous God. Our blessed Lord often asked penetrating questions, both of his own disciples as well as of those still outside of his redeeming grace. For a properly phrased question always leads one to a properly framed answer. An answer that reveals the spiritual state of mind. And so the disciples give our Savior what they believe seem to them to be honorable identifications. Some say that thou art John the Baptist. Some, Elias, and others, Jeremiah's or one of the prophets. Now these are all legitimate answers for there were those who believed him to be John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Herod said of Jesus in Matthew 14, 1, 2 that Jesus was John the Baptist, risen from the dead. We read verse 1 and 2 of Matthew 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. And therefore, mighty works do show forth themselves in him. But some said that Jesus was Elijah who was to herald or announce the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest they come and smite the earth with a cause. Still, others said that Jesus was Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Many supposed that Jeremiah was to reappear again someday in fulfillment of the great prophecy of Isaiah fifty-three seven, basing Jeremiah chapter eleven verse nineteen as its explanation. And yet, as we compare Jeremiah 11:19 to Isaiah 53, 7, we can easily see the confusion. But I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter, writes Jeremiah. And I knew not that they had devised devices against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be no more remembered. Isaiah fifty three seven says he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. And still others talked of Jesus being that prophet whom Moses talked about in Deuteronomy eighteen eighteen. I will raise them up a prophet, we read in Deuteronomy eighteen eighteen, from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And so you see, all of these identities were all partially correct of Jesus. But Jesus was much more than that. And so he asks his disciples the next question, wanting to hear what they personally believed him to be. But whom say ye that I am? Never mind what the others say or believe about me. What do you believe about me? Whom do you believe I am? There can be no more important question than this one. To miss the mark on this one is enough to lose one's soul For all of eternity. If we do not have the right Jesus. Then we can never hope to have eternal life. And the forgiveness of sins. Thou art the Christ the son of the living God confesses Peter in verse 16. And what Peter was saying in short was this. As the son of the living God Jesus was co-equal with the eternal father. Co-creator of this marvelous universe, one who had no beginning and therefore has no ending. He is himself God come in the flesh. No man, no matter how intelligent, no matter how well educated, could ever come to this conclusion on his own. This kind of enlightenment and understanding about the person of Christ comes only by direct revelation by God himself. As we see in verse 17. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. O dearly beloved, is it not a most precious gift to receive divine revelation, the truth about the works, the person of Jesus Christ our Savior? How else can one ever entrust them with their souls for all eternity unless we, through faith, know him to be the eternal Son of God who came to this sin-ruined earth in the form of man to die on the cross of Calvary for our sins? But then we read in Matthew 16:18. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And what Jesus was saying to Peter was this, Peter, I am the rock of salvation. I am the one upon whom I am going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, no effort by Satan and his hosts will ever be able to destroy my church or to prevent its testimony. And so this brings us to our first major point in our message this morning, entitled, The Church's One Foundation is Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then again in Colossians 1.18 we read, And he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. We are now in the age or dispensation of grace. The dispensation of law has passed away with the death of our Savior, who came to fulfill the law. With his death and resurrection came the church age, or more often called the age of grace. Upon the night that our Savior was to be betrayed, he instituted the Lord's Supper, which is and was to be an integral part of his Church. The Church of today has very little resemblance to the Church as instituted in the New Testament, and the reason for that is because man has inserted himself as its head. What I would like for us to look at in the next few moments is what the Scriptures teach about the Church. First and foremost, it is the word itself, church, which comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means a calling out. So the church is not a building, nor a program, nor an organization, but a people, a people called out by God. The day of Pentecost was the day in which the church had its beginning. Now the day of Pentecost came 50 days after the Lord's resurrection. And so we find all of the disciples gathered together in Jerusalem, awaiting the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They were all there in obedience to our Lord's command in Acts 1, verses 4-5. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, But wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Notice, please, carefully the opening four verses of Acts 2 in relation to the day of Pentecost. We read (laughs) verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all come with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. First we read when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Now this was a specific day in point and in time. It was a historical day. The day of Pentecost will never be repeated any more than the death and resurrection of our Savior will be repeated. It was a one time deal, 50 days after the Lord's resurrection. That is what the word Pentecost means in the Greek, 50. 50 from its Greek derivation. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this very fact in 1 Corinthians. Uh, well, I'm sorry. 50 from its Greek derivation. Secondly, we see that the Holy Ghost descended in great power. Verses 3 and 4. And filled the disciples who then began to speak with other tongues or languages. We read uh, uh, very carefully here. That the Holy Spirit could not be seen, but his presence could be felt and heard. What looked like fire was not fire, as per se, for we are told like as of fire, verse 3, but rather it was the visible manifestation of the descent of the Holy Spirit. And when he fully descended upon them and filled them, they began to speak with other languages, thus enabling the disciples to witness in many languages the finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. It resembles nothing of the gobbledygook that we see on television today of those who pretend to babble in tongues. This was a foreign language spoken on earth a language they had never studied or learned for the sole purpose of preaching the gospel of salvation to foreigners in that language. Thirdly, we need to understand that the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost for two important purposes. One was to usher in a new dispensation that is, the church age or the age of grace, and secondly, to baptize into one body all believers, Jew and Gentile alike. The Apostle Paul tells us of this very fact in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. What a marvelous gift we have as believers. God dwelling within the body of everyone who has been born again of the Spirit of God, everyone who has genuinely come to trust Christ as their Savior and Lord. So many times in Scripture, we are reminded of this fact. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? And then in Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then we read in 1 John 3 24, and he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which He hath given us. And finally, in Romans 8:11, the Apostle Paul once again reassures all believers but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you in other words he will also raise you up to immortality Oh, dearly beloved, can you see the wonder of it all? God dwelleth in us. Can you see why the Lord told Nicodemus in John 3, 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, Now I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. How unfortunate that so many called Christian churches today have so departed from the biblical teaching of salvation that there is now no resemblance whatsoever to what the New Testament church was meant to be. How tragic it is that millions upon millions who profess to be Christians and flock to the mega churches on the Lord's Day have never been born again of the Spirit of God. Millions have never heard the gospel of Christ, that is the power of God unto salvation. Millions know nothing of the Christ of Calvary nor of the crucified life. Dearly beloved, what we practice at Faith Bible Assembly is not popular, it is not entertaining, it is not exciting to the flesh, but we practice it because it is what the Lord commanded us to do. We practice it because Christ is the head of church, not men. We practice it because the Spirit of God who dwells within us constrains us to be obedient to our Lord's loving commands. Now we move to the early church's practice, Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things in common. as should be said. Here we see in verses, uh, verse 42 in particular, the format of their practice. It was very simple. First, we are told that they continued steadfastly to the following four things. Number one, the apostles' doctrine or teaching. Today, it's the Word of God. The people of God need to be taught the word of God regularly if they are to grow in the things of God. Truth is essential to spiritual growth. Truth is what separates error. We must remember that the early church did not have the luxury of the written New Testament yet. They depended wholly on the Old Testament and the oral ministry of the Apostles. Since the apostles were divinely appointed and divinely taught, the teaching that the early church received came with great power, power that changed lives. So teaching was an integral part of the early church's practice. Then number two, they met steadfastly for fellowship. It was part and parcel of the teaching together. Unfortunately, this aspect is greatly reduced neglected by the church today. There seem to be other activities more important to many who profess to be Christians. Many have the attitude, oh, I can worship God where I am. I can worship him outside by the stream on the back porch as I read my Bible. Or I can stay at home and listen to so-and-so on the radio or television. But this is contrary to the teaching of Scripture. We are commanded in Hebrews 10, verse 25, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching, that is the day of his return. Fellowship is a wonderful thing. Fellowship brings believers closer together, Fellowship strengthens our faith and our convictions concerning the things of God. Fellowship encourages us to pray for one another more fervently and more intelligently as we come to know and to love each other more so. Fellowship strengthens the local church more than anything else. Small assemblies need strong fellowship if they are going to survive the challenges that face them in a hostile environment. Without strong fellowship, there will be no strong missionary outreach. Instead of what often follows is a slow dying death. Then we read that number three, they were steadfast in the breaking of bread and that they broke bread often as they met from house to house. Here is the heart and center of our worship, the Lord's Supper. It was his dying request, as many have put it, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. writes Paul in first corinthians eleven twenty four to twenty five The Lord's Supper was an integral part of the early church practice. The Lord's Supper is what focuses our attention on the Savior and his work on Calvary. The symbols of the bread and wine reminds us of his person, his shed blood, his death and resurrection. When we meet around the Lord's table, we are reassured of his love and mercy and grace as exemplified through his sacrifice for us. We are reminded regularly that we were bought with a tremendous price and that we are not now our own. As we gather together for the breaking of bread, we are also reminded of his promises to his people, and in the practice of this ordinance we anticipate his soon return. Where else is the Lordship of Christ better demonstrated than at the Lord's table with his saints in holy reverence gathered around his table, exercising freely their holy priesthood as they offer up the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving? Where else can the holy angels as well as the fallen angels observe so vividly the saints' devotion to their Savior than at his table? Even the ladies' head coverings speak of his symbolic headship to them. No church or assembly which abandons the practice, the regular practice of the Lord's Supper, ever stays faithful to the Lord's commandments. The Lord's Supper is what helps the ship sailing in the right direction, so to speak. And number four, We see the early church steadfastly also met for prayers. and Oh, how vital prayer is to the spiritual health of the little little assembly of believers. And I say little, for the Bible knows nothing of the mega churches or gatherings that we see today. We see only small assemblies of believers that met from house to house for doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Prayer is, as has been often said before, the glue that binds us together as we uphold one another before the Lord. Prayer is what enables us to pour out our hearts and our souls to our Savior in anticipation of his gracious response. Without prayer, there can be no meaningful spiritual growth, since prayer is what reveals our utter dependence upon the lord and our intimate walk with him a christian church which abandons corporate prayer will soon find itself powerless and in isolation from its members and in direct disobedience to the savior's word we are commanded to pray in the scriptures more times than we are commanded to do anything else Passage after passage, we see our Savior praying. Mark 6.46, and when he, Jesus, had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. Then in Luke 5.11, and he, Jesus, withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. And then in Luke 9.29, we read, and as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered And his raiment was white and glistening. The Apostle Paul was also a man of constant prayer. His prayers drew him closer to his walk with the Savior. And his heart was one with the Lord. How else could he pen such precious words as in Philippians 4, verses 6 to 7? Be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Nearly every epistle which the Apostle Paul has written to the church is rich with the abundance with his prayers for the saints and their spiritual needs. Philippians 1.3.4, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. Ephesians 1.15-16, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul reveals his prayer for the Corinthian church. Now then, we are all ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, ye be reconciled to God. Or in Colossians 1.3, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, and so on. Can you imagine how many individual members of the body of Christ Paul must have prayed each day for? Can you imagine what powerful prayers were uttered on each of their behalf? And what effect this knowledge that the apostle Paul was praying for them had on their lives? It changed their lives. It built them up in their faith. Prayers by our brethren on our behalf sustain us and uphold us through our darkest moments should we then not return to do the same for our brethren, that is, pray for them in return. Corporate prayer is essential to the spiritual health of any assembly. Poor attendance always indicates a serious problem in the church or the assembly and should be of paramount concern. The New Testament church thrived on the preaching of the word, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. It needed nothing else to stir the hearts of the saints to properly worship our Savior and Lord. The Lord is still building his church today. Today, he is still calling people out for himself, and his promise is still the same today, just as it was when he made it in Matthew sixteen eighteen. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, that is Christ, not Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Our time has run out for this morning, but now as always, Before I step down from this platform, I must ask you all this solemn question. Are you in Christ this morning? Are you a genuine child of God? Have you ever been born again of the Spirit of God? Because if you have never been born again of the Spirit of God, the Bible tells us in Romans 8, 9, now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Oh, dear friends, if you are not sure, If you have any doubt as to where you stand before the Lord this morning, then I plead with you. Turn from your sins. Ask Christ to forgive you. Trust in him to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And receive him today as your Savior and Lord. His perfect sacrifice on Calvary's tree was sufficient for all the sins of the entire world. Only. His perfect, sinless, shed blood can wash away our sins and iniquities. The Bible tells us in Colossians 1.14 that we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Won't you receive him now if you haven't done so already? Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Acts sixteen. 31. let's pray father we thank thee so much for the word of God this morning we thank thee for this passage of scripture where the Lord lays out clearly that he he alone will build his church and that the gates of hell shall never prevail against it father we thank thee for bringing us together this morning And we ask thee now to part us with thy blessing. And if the Lord be not come, may it please thee once again to bring us together next Lord's Day. For we ask it always and for the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.